This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, the world's richest person declared he does want to make one of the world's biggest social media platforms his personal property after all. Elon Musk is set to take control of Twitter. It's one of the biggest tech acquisitions of all time. So what will it mean for the future of this popular platform? It's the latest twist in the on-again, off-again saga that saw Elon Musk put $44 billion US dollars on the table and then change his mind. But on Media Watch this weekend, we hear more from the social media innovator Evan Henshaw-Plath, who founded the forerunner of Twitter, but now works here in New Zealand on decentralising social media. But if the biggest platforms now have billions of users and are worth billions of dollars, isn't it all a bit late for that? Also, we'll hear from the boss at TVNZ, a state-owned broadcaster, on the brink of being dissolved into a new public media entity, along with RNZ. This is not about adopting the culture, with all due respect, of one organisation or the other. This is an opportunity to create a new culture. But first, another headache for him and for TVNZ this week, Scandal had a reality TV show which didn't sound especially ethical to begin with. TVNZ is surgically editing out an entire character from controversial new reality TV show, F-Boy Island, after Revelations contestant Wade Moore appeared in court last week charged with suffocating a woman. He'd admitted to police that he'd lured her to his home because she was drunk and he hoped to have sex with her. There was Today FM's Tova O'Brien introducing an interview last Monday with a contestant in TVNZ's newest reality dating show, F-Boy Island. Though, as you heard there, he's no longer part of the picture. The day before that, the Herald on Sunday had revealed his unpleasant backstory and revealed to its readers not up with the current slang that an F-Boy is a man looking for sex but not looking for a relationship. And having made the paper's front page with his scoop, it also fell to the Herald's senior investigative reporter David Fisher to tell listeners of the Herald's front page podcast what an F-Boy is exactly. There's the F-Boy versus the nice guy. That's the premise of the show and the three women to, uh, to weed that out. Welcome to the island. Uh, there are ten nice guys. Fire! Cheers. And ten of those guys. you got to play the game right. <laughs> it's time to separate the men from the boys. Now, last weekend, David Fisher also reported that Wade Moore was found not guilty of that charge of suffocation, but... He copped a broadside from District Court Judge Noel Sainsbury, who said his behaviour in targeting a drunk and vulnerable woman was deeply inappropriate and disrespectful. And many commentators reckoned it was TVNZ that was inappropriate and disrespectful by screening F-Boy Island in the first place, even before the scandal sparked by Wade Moore this week. When TVNZ was casting about last June for three stunning Kiwi women searching for the guy of their dreams, former TVNZ Fair Go reporter Brodie Kane reacted like this on her podcast Girls Uninterrupted. TVNZ, like the straightest up and down... Network Boy Island on TV, like, and let's encourage a bunch of dudes to over three chicks on television. I just, it just, oh. Well, this week, TVNZ said it will tighten procedures for screening contestants before screening its reality shows to the public. But Wade Moore was far from the first rogue reality TV contestant here, and TVNZ has screened several other shows based on matching up and hooking up in the past, which were also criticised as tacky, but which aired without much controversy. In 2018, for example, there was Heartbreak Island, filmed in Fiji, which TVNZ dubbed Tinder in the Tropics. 
It was sponsored for TVNZ2 by KFC, who said their product was not unlike the early stages of romance, tender, tempting and hot and spicy. And TVNZ even created a spicier version of the show for TVNZ On Demand, which was sponsored by Durex. But as David Fisher pointed out on the Herald's front page podcast this week, with reference to the F-Boy Island mess... The question I keep hearing from people is why the show was being made in the first place, whether this is the sort of thing that one has a state broadcaster for, whether or not this is what TVNZ's meant to be about. Just last week, TVNZ's latest annual report was published in which CEO Simon Power listed responsible broadcasting as one of three key pillars of TVNZ's strategy for a sustainable future. And the timing was also bad given that the government has arranged a marriage between TVNZ and state-owned RNZ in spite of the cultural incompatibilities, which could mean it's not exactly a marriage at first sight and might even mean heartbreak island for the public. Earlier this month, for example, Broadcasting and Media Minister Willie Jackson told a parliamentary select committee that TVNZ had to change its attitude to the new public media entity project. And when TVNZ didn't screen the Queen's recent memorial service, offshore-owned Channel 3 did the honours instead, commentators wondered whether TVNZ was signalling, I'm a commercial TV company, get me out of here. Well, we'll ask the TVNZ Chief Executive Simon Power about all that shortly, But while the Herald's David Fisher said that the F-Boy Island reality show had a public value close to zero, it has also made an unexpected contribution to the debate on what state-owned broadcasters are for. And it's also highlighted one of the gaps that a joined-up public media outfit might just fill. Earlier, we heard that Today FM's Tova O'Brien had confronted F-Boy Island's ejected contestant about that episode that landed him in court, and she found his attitude to hook-up culture and consent didn't seem to have been changed much by the experience. I wouldn't even just say young men, I'd say young people. Who hasn't had the, you know, a 3am you up text and you know to the house? I've had girls text me that time of the morning and say you up, you know, like it isn't appropriate, but it is something that is not just in our culture, but in all cultures. It's a bit more than a you up text though, isn't it? Now, earlier this year, in response to concern about safe relationships for young people, the Ministry for Social Development proposed engaging the offshore publisher Vice.com for media content all about the issue, which angered local producers who reckoned that they could have done that job, like the spin-off, which broke that story. But if New Zealand did have a national public broadcaster that does reach younger people, well, they wouldn't have had to look elsewhere in the first place. In 2020, RNZ proposed a new radio and online service for younger New Zealanders. And RNZ's board chair, Dr Jim Mather, told Parliament that this could include news and important health and wellbeing information. A multimedia platform for young New Zealanders which will include music produced by local artists as well as live performances. The level of locally produced music will be unrivaled in the history of our nation. Commissioned programming content for young people that will explore topics relevant to them, such as civic, financial, lifestyle, and most importantly, wellbeing issues. It is our intent to provide an opportunity for young New Zealanders to build a community designed by them, produced for them, presented by them, and in doing so, creating a lifelong connection with RNZ.
But right now, in 2022, New Zealand still doesn't have any comprehensive public service platform for younger people. RNZ's youth service didn't happen after a backlash over the impact it would have had on RNZ Concert, and it launched a paired-back online platform instead called Tahi, based around streaming music. Meanwhile, TVNZ has an online unit aimed at a younger audience called RE, even though it isn't really required to under its current commercial mandate. And at Thursday's Parliamentary Select Committee hearing into the public media entity legislation, TVNZ's Head of Content Kate Slater was asked what would she do if all the public money for media content was hers to deploy wherever she liked. And she said this. For me, a real focus is in younger audiences, uh, both children um, and our rangatahi audiences. So I think there's a great opportunity to do more in that space. I think... um, Underserved audiences or under, you know hard to reach audiences are by their nature much harder to to get hold of, and so you almost need to disproportionately spend mm. on them to ensure you've got enough of a flow of content. So a national youth service is the sort of thing a public media entity could do with a beefed up budget available from next year, probably a better outcome for the nation than another series of F Boy Island or something similar. Now at the moment, the legislation and the draft charter currently before Parliament says underserved audiences should be provided for, but it doesn't actually oblige the new public media entity to provide any specific services beyond the commercial free ones already provided by RNZ. And that's something that makes even the supporters of a new entity anxious. And after the select committee hearings on Tuesday and Thursday this past week, it was the problems and not the possibilities that other media that will compete with the new public media entity seized upon. For example, this was News Hub at 6 last Thursday. Media bosses have told MPs the proposed TVNZ-RNZ merger is riddled with problems. Front and centre is the perception of a lack of editorial independence the state broadcaster will have from the government. Meanwhile, NZME's News Talk ZB headlined its own chief editor's concern like this. Herald managing editor Shane Curry from NZME took on Willie Jackson for questioning New Zealand's media trustworthiness in the House last week. One of the points around the independence of this new entity is that the government won't be seeking to influence. Those comments from the minister sure undermined that argument. And NZME's New Zealand Herald harked back to the 1970s with the headline, New Public Media Entity Gives Ministers Muldoon-Era Control. Now that concern had come from TVNZ and its chief executive Simon Power, himself a former minister in a national party-led government that followed on from a Labour-led government using TVNZ as a tool to provide more public service broadcasting without lasting success. Now those concerns about editorial independence and possible political influence and the public media's impact on other media companies had already been aired after the draft legislation was made public last June. But clearly they haven't gone away, and they won't, as the creation of the new public media entity draws closer next March. Now when TVNZ's chief executive addressed the Economic Development Science and Innovation Committee last Thursday, Simon Power was at pains to point out that he does back the new public media entity, which will subsume his 733 employees next March. And this week I asked him about how that will go. But first, as that under-fire reality show F-Boy Island sparked debate this week about what we should expect from a public broadcaster... Would shows like that still have a home in the new entity, which will still need to attract eyeballs and advertising? That'll be a matter for the new entity as to how it wishes to interpret the charter um, and what programming comes under the charter. But for us, it's been an international format, which is originally from the US, uh, with Dutch 
Danish, Swedish versions. And HBO uh, Max created the series to attract uh, younger audiences. Um, and that, that US version's been picked up by the likes of the BBC for that very reason. But just last week, there was the latest annual report uh, for TVNZ published. There's a whole section there on responsible broadcasting and mm-hmm. values. And in your own address in that report, you said that Responsible broadcasting, one of three key pillars of TVNZ's sustainable strategy for the future. So do you consider that, as chief executive, that a show that has that exploitative element in it is actually responsible broadcasting? The power in the programming is very much in the hands of the three women uh, involved as contestants. Um, As I say, it's part of that broader strategy for rangatahi for us, which includes documentaries, factual programming and scripted programming. Um, and as I say, in this in this particular case, beyond the provocative title, which I accept is is provocative, the show is essentially look at helps and create some very important conversations, and it may just help equip um, younger people with tools to navigate a new era of um, online dating. Yeah, not that much modern day dating takes place on an island, I suppose, but that's another matter. But while some people clearly didn't think that F Boy Island is a suitable thing for a, a, a state owned broadcaster, they possibly did expect that the uh, significant state occasion like the Queen Elizabeth II Memorial would be on TVNZ. It wasn't in the end. Um, your rivals at uh, 3 Discovery uh, screened that as well as went out on RNZ on the radio, of course. Was that not something you wanted to do or you weren't given the chance? No, we were approached by the Department of Internal Affairs to, to produce that We had already um, in the UK a team of um, 15 people covering the Queen's funeral. About 13 uh, had travelled from overseas to get there. We thought that um, we'd done an outstanding job um, of the coverage at that point. We were light on resources and the details of what were required at the time weren't fully developed. We discussed that with officials. Discovery then uh, produced it, as you rightly say, um, and um, shared that with all media, which was, you know, appropriate in the circumstances and, and worked well. So your choice in there, not as has been suggested in some quarters, a kind of snub from the government? No, no snub. OK. So this week in Parliament at the Select Committee hearings, you re- reaffirmed that TVNZ backs the public media entity to come into place from next March. But when the Minister of Broadcasting and Media, Willie Jackson, appeared in front of the same committee, he was first up for its hearings. He said TVNZ's attitude needs to change and that, that you are trying to get the best of both worlds. Now, when you did your appearance for the committee, you, you referenced that and said, well, we are trying to get the best of both worlds, the best of TVNZ <laughs> and RNZ into the new entity. But yeah. what what Willie Jackson said was interpreted as TVNZ was not wholehearted about it, was perhaps dragging the chain or not committed, uh, possibly even waiting for a change of government that might scrap the whole idea altogether? No, that's, that last... Um uh, inflection certainly not the case, Colin. We're not even contemplating, you know, what that might look like. We understand who our shareholders are, and we understand that our shareholders, you know, wish to progress um, with the merger. And and as I've said publicly many times, TVNZ is is very supportive of that approach and very enthusiastic about the opportunity. That doesn't mean that there isn't an obligation on us to make sure that any legislative framework isn't properly constructed and properly drafted. For TVNZ remaining silent on some of those issues, that would not be discharging 
um, our obligations to um, our staff, to our to our viewers, to the public, and indeed to our shareholder if we weren't raising the matters that we thought would impede this organisation having the best possible start. In reference to the Minister's comments, though, about um, you know wanting to have the best of both worlds and at the risk of repeating myself, that's absolutely right. It must be a combination of what is best in both organisations, getting the opportunity to start to create a culture that blends the best of both. But, but so the Minister I, did say, sorry to interrupt you there, Mr okay. Power, but the Minister did say that RNZ seemed to get to the policy TVNZ by contrast, was not. It was somehow not as wholehearted. I mean, that, that's the message he was giving the committee. I respectfully disagree. We're just looking to make it as workable and as successful as possible. You know, we, we think there are some areas that need to improve. Yeah, we will talk about those for, for sure. But whereas other media companies, and we've heard it in their reporting of uh, this week's hearings, but, but also as soon as the legislation came out, they were concerned about the commercial Mm-hmm. clout this new organisation will have and the level of aggressiveness with which it might operate in the market, which they don't know, and they've yeah. foregrounded those concerns. The legislation and the guidance so far isn't doesn't really circumscribe the, the commercial activities the new organisation can uh, participate in. You said we see this as permissive, as in it gives you a lot of scope to do possibly what you want, and you did say you know every dollar you can earn through commercial activity is one the taxpayers don't need to. So are you saying there that you think this gives you quite a lot of scope to be potentially as commercial as you like without falling foul of anything in the Charter or the legislation? Now, so those comments were made by our General Counsel, actually, who was sitting next to me. Sorry, um, that was Brett McNulty. Yeah, that's right. No, no, you're, you're, you're quite right. But he's right. The, the legislation and absence of um, specific or prescriptive um, direction as to how the new entity is to behave commercially must be regarded as permissive um, because otherwise, um, as is evidenced in other parts of the bill, um, certain more prescriptive um, clauses would have been um, put into the legislation. That doesn't mean that there's not room for those matters to be clarified or to be narrowed or to be widened or whatever the case may be. And so the opportunity to um, be as commercially strong as possible is one that should be taken for two reasons. One, that, that although the new organisation has been described as not-for-profit, that doesn't mean an operating surplus wouldn't be available if the new entity was to, you know, operate correctly. But there's an opportunity to reinvest in local content, in investment, in infrastructure, in platforms that others, uh, listeners um, and viewers might use to access content from the new entity. And if that at some point manages to help relieve the burden on, on taxpayers, then that's something that the drafters of the legislation you know, should think about. Well, TVNZ submission does point out that initially uh, the sums being talked about was a $400 million kind of operation a year, uh, of which roughly half would be income from uh, public sources and half commercial. Is that the proportion you think is likely to be good for a for a not-for-profit public service. That $400 million uh, matter that you describe comes from, you know, some comments that were made from the former minister from memory, Colin, here, uh, during the budget process or just after the budget, where it indicated that roughly, you know, that 200 mark would come from... Um, uh, from the public, and that the other half would be made up from uh, commercial sources of revenue. I- I've got to say that sent a bit of a flutter um, into the market as, a- as advertising agencies and media agencies said, well, does that mean TVNZ is effectively going to 
limit the opportunities for us to use it um, to reach our customers. And look, I still think that has to be ironed out because actually there hasn't been any, I haven't seen any prescriptive documents that indicate what the optimum um, amount of revenue this new organisation should earn is. And quite frankly, I'd be worried if somebody had worked that out in advance. This is this should be a matter for the new entity to work out what's required. You know, these advertising agencies and media agencies represent 900 businesses across New Zealand who have used Television New Zealand to access their customers, to sell their goods and services, to employ people and to make a contribution to the economy. And numbers I've I've been made familiar with in recent months indicate, you know, somewhere between 2 and 2.4% of GDP is generated through this particular part of the economy through advertising and media agencies. This is not something that, you know, you can just um, put a box around uh, and put a number across. Well, yeah, there will be people out there that won't care at all uh, whether this impacts negatively on advertising agencies and the advertising business. They'll be valuing the kind of non-commercial public service of content course. they get of course. From, from both outlets, you know, let, of let's course. say. So this question of the incompatible or potentially incompatible clashing cultures, however you want to put it, mm-hmm. what can be done to, to, to smooth that out? Because March is quite soon. And, uh, yes. and even, for example, I mean, internally, your latest annual report has of your 733 staff, 300 of them or more earn six-figure salaries. Yeah, see, I think, um, you know, with, with the greatest of respect, I think that's a slightly negative lens to put on the potential here. So, um, you know, when I think about the opportunity uh, and, you know, you talk about the clashing mandates, or maybe not your exact words, but the clashing mandates between the two organisations. Look, the legislation is clear that the primary driver of this new organisation is the public media outcome. So that's crystal clear on that. But there's also an organisation which is lining up alongside that, which is the commercial aspect of TVNZ. And so the challenge for the new management team and the new board is this idea of how do you utilise both of those skill sets, both lots of talent, both lots of expertise to get the best possible public media outcomes. And if the commercial arm of the new entity can aid in gaining more revenue to reinvest into local content and to reinvest into public media outcomes, all the better. Well, in TBNZ submission, quite a bit of it is about that issue of the independence, uh, ensuring the independence of it. The submission speaks about um, the optics and the perception of uh, this being being a problem, even if it's kind of theoretical. And a lot of other submitters have raised that same problem through the hearings on Tuesday and Thursday. But look, I would have thought there's a greater threat which was raised by the RNZ board member Jane Wrightson and also by members of the Air 2 union who followed, saying Jane Wrightson said we need a minimum of five years of surety of funding. At, at the moment, mm. the government has, in mm. its budget, has, has done three. You were a cabinet minister in a national party government when, or a national party when Labour Party structures were set up with short-term things like TVNZ's commercial-free channels that the National came to power didn't support. Those things all crumbled. Couldn't this end up being another Labour-led government intervention with short-term funding that it ends up uh, withering away uh, because uh, governments change? You know, that's a matter for the government of the day to signal whether that there's any permanency around that funding. The reality of um, change of government and what impact that may have on the entity, that's democracy at work. If you want legislation to endure beyond governments, um, it's really important that not only do you have um, you know, cross-party understanding of what you're trying to um, achieve, but more particularly that the model itself 
doesn't allow any future leverage to be taken um, on, um, on how it's set up. And we feel very strongly the ACE, uh, ACE model, the Autonomous Crown Entity model, is the wrong model. Um, because regardless of whether or not ministerial uh, interference occurs, the model allows it, allows the direction. The current models that Radio New Zealand and TVNZ operate under do not allow it. You've got to see beyond the current political construct or, or whether the next minister might exercise you know, a right of direction or the like under the ACE model. It needs to be a model which sees beyond this government and the next government and sees well into the future where a different shaped, a differently configured government might take advantage of, um, uh, of that opportunity. And it's just not credible in my mind to say but other organisations who have this structure haven't seen this particular, um, you know, this particular thing occur. As we both know, um, the use of media as currency in politics or the relationship between media and politics is very different uh, to some of these other entities that might line up um, under the ACE model column. Yeah, and you pointed to some things in Australia that have happened that given you some concern with their public broadcaster and its oversight. But, but part of this is also, isn't it, about whether Treasury gets oversight, depending on what the model is, or whether it's uh, ministry officials. Um, that's part of it, isn't it? You know, I'd be disappointed, as they say, if um, we're dealing with a form um, if that's come about as a result of different um, ministries or departments having a different view on what should be done. Well, you are, of course, trying to point to, you know, the opportunities uh, yeah, that arose right. from this, not, not just the problems, right. which is, of that's course, right. what yeah. a lot of the hearings focus on, because people are anxious about it. And it yeah, um, of course. So you said, for example, in the annual report, it says uh, that you describe this as an exciting opportunity yes. to set new standards for media to inform, educate, entertain Kiwis in a digital environment that's evolving. Um, but it was interesting part in the... Um, hearings where uh, Kate Slater, your head of content, was asked, well, if you had all the funding, what would you do with it? And she was put on the spot there and, and said, look, a service yeah. for youth. And But interestingly, in, in the section on the charter, um, this is in your submission, TVNZ submission, we believe the charter should be less prescriptive, more principles-based. Mm-hmm. But isn't the problem that people are looking at it saying that there's very little obligations in this to actually do something specific, like a service for youth? It's all quite general about striving to serve an, an underserved audience um, and, mm-hmm. and so on. Why do you want it to be less prescriptive? You know, in my experience, I've looked at legislation which is principles-based and I've looked at legislation which is highly prescriptive. Um, my view is that um, legislation works best when it's principle-based rather than highly prescriptive because it's easy with prescription to omit by error, Um, whereas in a principle-based approach, um, you end up, um, you know, debating at the margins rather than what's in and out. As things change, as markets change, as viewer trends change, as the way people use media, interact with media, listen, observe, online, mobile, um, if, if the legislation is too prescriptive, it can become out of date. But, but, then, you, but then, sorry you, to think, interrupt you, but then people do not know. They look at this. They do not know what this new entity is going to provide and what it will provide uh, existing commercial broadcasters don't provide, or even the existing state-owned ones. And people who work in the industry have no idea what sort of content or networks might be created. Wouldn't that suit the public a bit better? 
Well, I mean, without trying to sound like I'm dodging the question, I think you should ask the minister that. Um, I mean, you know, in the end, it's not Radio New Zealand or TV New Zealand that's designed this legislation. We're just trying to make it work. Um, we're doing our best to try and assist with um, getting the right tension in those discussions to make sure we get the right outcome. Well, one of the little hiccups that, that came up uh, this month was New Zealand on air saying, yeah. uh, we, we, we now realise our funding is going to be roughly cut in half. We are now urgently going to have to reshape uh, yeah. how we spend our existing funding, which turns out to be around $70 million a year. Mm-hmm. And that's, but isn't that a sign that some ducks that should have been in a row really aren't? Because that's something that, business cases, consultants, all should have grappled with um, and ministry officials and so on? I, th- I think that's fair, Colin, and I think the silence around um, New Zealand On Air you know, is one of the things where clarification needs to be sought pretty quickly. Having gone through this process and been appointed, you've not been in the job that long, but um, you'll be wanting to, I guess, put your hat in the ring to lead uh, the new entity when it comes into being in, in March? Colin, um, I haven't made a decision yet. I am very busy thinking about how TVNZ is going to arrive on the 28th of February um, when the the night before the new entity is set to take effect. I I think it's really important that I don't get distracted by what might happen after the 1st of March at this point, firmly where my focus is at the moment, Colin. A bit weird though, wouldn't it, to take a job for such a short time (laughs) just to shepherd in a change that, you know, effectively, you know, you weren't a a party to. uh, No, you might might say that, but actually that, you know, the fact that um, there's kind of two or three reasons why I was drawn to the job. The first is I love the NZ Inc., um, opportunity that Television New Zealand um, presents. I like commercial models. That's you know that's where I've been banking for ten years. Minister of Commerce uh, before that is one of the portfolios I had back in the day. I'm very interested in commercial models. The third thing is I have a deep love of news and current affairs, and um, I spend lots of time understanding how our journalists and news gatherers and news editors and producers work, and I'm finding that part of the business um, absolutely fascinating. But the other thing is, at my core, I'm a public policy geek, and so the opportunity to work on such an interesting piece of public policy was um, was too good not to take. Is it a bit of a concern that some people look at you and think, well, this guy's been in a National Party government and it would be concerning to have, you know, to have someone with political allegiances at, at the helm of a major institution? You know, when I left politics, I like to think that I was somebody who was happy to do business with anybody across the House. Um, remember, I left at the end of 2011. Um, I haven't been a member of a political party since then. I've had a 10-year career at Westpac that was the government banker. Um, so, you know, I was obviously dealing with um, politicians, political parties and governments of different colours during that time. Um, I maintain an interest um, in what's going on um, in Wellington, um, but I have not been um, politically you know, aligned or active since 2011. What- so now this whole process ca- carries on. The committee will report back. There'll be second reading. So there is opportunity for all these things that have been said this past week by yourselves and others in front of the committee to be considered. But do you think the government is of a mind to make any particularly radical changes? Because at all stages of this, it was all done behind closed doors. So isn't it possible the government has a pretty set idea of what they want? They'll go through the process of consulting but won't be minded to to make many significant changes? I think all good policymakers start from the starting point that they want their public policy and legislation to endure. Um, and there are some changes that need to be made to the legislation to ensure that this piece of work would endure, and I 
sincerely hope that those with the ability to influence it um, listen carefully to that process and make some of those changes. That was Simon Power, the current chief executive of TBNZ, who this week appeared before the Parliamentary Select Committee scrutinising the Aotearoa New Zealand public media legislation. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we looked at how the Christchurch Call, the project backed by our government, which has the bold goal of eliminating extremism online, is digging into the secret algorithms that social media platforms use to target all of us with content. And we heard from Evan Henshaw-Plath, who worked on a startup in the mid-2000s called Odeo, which eventually turned into Twitter, which we learned this week the world's richest person does want to turn into his own private property after all. Now, last week, Evan Henshaw-Plath told MediaWatch that every modern media platform has sparked concern that it might be bad for society. You can find essays talking about how dangerous the novel is because the printed novel is keeping them inside and they're no longer being able to concentrate on going outside and talking to people because they're distracted by reading the novel. And you saw the same thing with... The telephone and the radio and television and newspapers and web and email and social media. And while they amplify all kinds of content to us via social media, the biggest social media platforms are still harvesting data from us in ways we still don't understand and in volumes we can't comprehend, as News Hub's Patrick Gow pointed out in his TV documentary aired last week. Even if you wanted to, you could never, ever gather as much information on a person as the internet companies have already got. Yes, there are companies who hold way more information about individuals and businesses than the Bureau would ever be able to to access, and I suspect it's only going to increase as well. That was the boss of the spy agency, the GCSB, Andrew Hampton, talking there to News Hub's Patrick Gower. Now, as we heard last weekend here on Media Watch, Evan Henshaw-Plath quit the US for Wellington, where he's now on a mission to decentralise social media. He's developing his own service called Planetary, which doesn't have pushy algorithms or ads and which doesn't harvest personal data. And that all sounds good, but with TikTok, Twitter and Facebook's users now in the billions, isn't it all a bit late to decentralise social media? So there, there is a network effect by which the, the winners win more. And companies grow bigger. But we don't have a single corporation running the world. Like, we don't have a single Amazon that dominates the world economy. Amazon is huge, and it has a role in a large part of the economy. But what we see with Facebook, and this is the change from six years ago, is Facebook today, the core Facebook.com, is a dying service. Every day, fewer people use it. They use it for less things. And they're moving off into looking at other things. Facebook was very smart and purchased WhatsApp, Instagram, and Oculus because they knew that Facebook itself would die. And so they used their wealth to try and leapfrog onto the next emerging platform. President Trump got kicked off Twitter. Um, In fact, in the Forbes piece published recently, it said you might have advised your former colleague Jack Dorsey about that back in the day. I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, he formed his own social network. Is that, in a sense, you know, the right thing to do, uh, to split off from a platform? I mean, I guess he didn't have a choice, but these also coexist uh, in that whole ecosystem as well, don't they, quite successfully? Absolutely. And and so now I totally support the the removal of Trump's account. At Mm. the time, I actually advised that Jack Dorsey not 
delete Trump's account because he was in a situation where the stock market controlled the majority of the shares of Twitter and the shareholders would have had a revolt if he'd canceled the account without Trump doing something so outrageous as trying to organize a coup. Then the Twitter management would have been removed. They, because they would have said that there was too much economic value in Trump having that account. Well, that's quite a calculation to have to make, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. But you, uh, in the recent Forbes article uh, about you, um, talked about um, working to decentralise social media, and it said Twitter and others are actually investing in this. Um, that seems counterintuitive. If they corner the market in microblogging, why would they be interested in decentralizing the social media, or have I not understood properly what that really means? From the outside, it looks like the smaller players in the space, Tumblr, Twitter, Reddit, and uh, now Be Real, are like, they look like big companies, but they see themselves as smaller, nimbler competitors to the TikToks and Facebooks of the world. They actually have an interest in banding together with the larger set of users and technologists who build open source technology to try and build something that uh, breaks Facebook and TikTok's stranglehold on the social space. That's why you know we're able to work with these companies to build an open alternative. Say so the difference is philosophically trying to make digital tools people can use rather than just a kind of proprietary service. It's exactly that. It's, it's a tools or when you uh, use the web, you can use Firefox or Chrome or Microsoft Edge or Safari as different web browsers that view the same web. What we're building is something similar for social software and social media, where you can use many different apps that all have different opinions about what the algorithms would be, what the visual design is, whether or not it's optimized for video or photos or text, whether or not you can connect to everybody in the world, or it's scoped with private encrypted groups of people who are more intimate groups of friends who could collaborate. What we want is we want there to sort of be a thousand flowers that bloom, as opposed to being dependent on a, a single person who decides what their development team does that decides what speech is acceptable. So the users have control and the ability to actually create new parts of it? That's Absolutely. And is this what you're doing at Planetary? This is what I'm doing at Planetary, yes. Okay. But is this a hard one to get people to invest in? Because you say, let a thousand flowers bloom, that's great. But presumably investors that want to return, uh, <laughs> you know, if you're in business, you know, they would rather uh, you are one of a few flowers, you know, like the bigger platforms we've talked about, that uh, have a lot of users, a lot of engagement, and, you know, make a lot of money. Well, so the, the investors are very clear, you can't beat Facebook. They hate Facebook. They don't like the way it's destroyed innovation, destroyed the ability to do stuff. They don't like the effect it's had on American politics in particular. They also feel like Facebook has a stranglehold. And unless you have a billion dollars like TikTok does to build up a user base through advertising and through paying compelling content creators, you have no way of building it. So the investors hate Facebook. But what we're building is an, an economic and social and political commons. Uh, fisheries are a commons. Forestry are a commons. We have lots of spaces where you have many businesses that exist and use this commonly held economic resource. And so what we tell investors is, like, you don't get to own everything. But 
you get to be a, a large fish in this ocean where there's much more interesting economic activity happening. The Edmund Hillary Fellowship. Fellowship yep. Does this twin up with your work with Planetary? Is it kind of one and the same goal, or is there a specific project that you have in mind or a specific goal of your work that, that you want to translate into the, the work of the fellowship? So when I first came to New Zealand for the Open Source Open Society Conference, that's where I first met a group of people called Inspiral who are collaborating with technology and innovation here in Wellington, and I met people working on the secure scuttlebutt protocol. That's the protocol that Dominic Tarr created on his sailboat in, here in New Zealand. And I started talking to them and I said, you need to combine this open source hacker thing with some knowledge of Silicon Valley, some knowledge of product and design and packaging so that normal people could use that. When I first visited, I didn't, everyone here told me that Trump was going to get elected and I didn't believe him because it was right before the election. <laughs> and then Trump got elected and uh, I started looking at alternatives. And I ended up staying in the United States throughout the entire term of the Trump presidency because I felt like I needed to be there in opposition to what was going on. But I also did the paperwork so that I could move to New Zealand and then finally finished it and then had to do the, the mess of MIQ lotteries and things oh, like okay. that. All of that. Which, yes. took, which took longer than I intended. First, finally, here in New Zealand, our news media have banded together to try and negotiate deals with uh, Meta and Google for payment. Because you know, six years ago, we also talked about how uh, the internet had undercut the business model of existing journalism. So our government is backing our local news media companies in this effort, uh, following the lead of Australia, where yep. Meta and Google have been forced to cough up hundreds, a couple of hundred million dollars a year to their industry, which is very significant. Do you think that's a good move for our media here? The paid media world, where there are professional media producers, isn't that important to Google and Facebook and the other big Apple and the other big tech companies. The media companies say that it is. They say you do a Google search on some significant topic and you will find in the, in the top results stories about it created by news media companies uh, that certainly tech platforms haven't contributed sure, to. Sure, and, and they, they highlight that, but... Uh, they could easily turn around and just highlight Wiki News, the, the project of Wikimedia, that also has an article about all these different things that's crowdsourced with individuals who do their donation time. Like, they highlight it because they want the legitimacy and they want to support it and they feel a social obligation to it. But it's not an economic obligation. So if you're going to win that negotiation, you got to realize to the big tech companies in Silicon Valley... New Zealand is a teeny percentage of their revenue and income. And sure, if you can figure out a way to negotiate $100 million a year that gets equitably distributed from these tech companies, then, then do it. But if you do that, Google and Meta is a source of cr critical finance for our local news media sure. industries. Is that a dangerous dependence? Because it could... It could dry up or it gives, the, it gives them leverage and dependence. They're not going to go after the media because, frankly, to their scale... Commercial news media is teeny. The risk is that because they're not very important to these media com these big tech companies, and because the revenue is very important to the professional media industry here, they could make changes in what they display and how they cite how they work and what you know how it all works. That all of a sudden make that arrangement moot, innovate away from using this stuff for no reason about the money, and then all of a sudden 
the media here has no sustainable business model. Elon Musk cares about that stuff. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg cares a little bit, maybe. But honestly, they don't, they don't care. It's, it's seen as arm's length. It's seen as, as one of, of 10,000 different kinds of content that they're monetizing. They're not going to make an intervention in that. They don't, they don't care. That was Evan Henshaw-Plath, former founder of the social media network Odeo, which was a forerunner of Twitter. And Evan Henshaw-Plath is now also the chief executive of the tech platform Planetary, which is working to decentralise social media and break down the epic scale and power of the biggest platforms. And he's doing that from right here in New Zealand, where he's now an Edmund Hillary Fellow. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media after 10 o'clock on Nights with Karen Hay with Midweek Media Watch, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.